everyone. On today's episode of Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg, I talked to Sarah Brito, the co-founder and president of the Good Food 100 Restaurants List. We talk about how she saved me in London, how chefs are changing the way we all eat, and how restaurants can do more to improve the lives of farmers, farm workers, and food workers, animals, and public health. Please enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nirenberg. Um, one of the, the best things about my job is I just know a lot of cool people uh, in, in the food movement. And one of them is with me today. Sarah Brito is the co-founder and president of the Good Food Media Network, a nonprofit educational organization that publishes the Good Food uh, 100 restaurants list. Uh, Sarah has worked for more than 20 years with a number of organizations, including Slow Food New York City, um, Chefs Collaborative, American Express, and the New York Times. Um, she knows all the awesome chefs in the world and is really great at connecting people um, and, and again, just knows everybody, but is also good about building really um, uh fun relationships with people and she's introduced me to to a lot of people i have two funny stories uh, about you sarah and um <laughs> so earlier this year i and and you uh separately uh, flew uh to england at the invitation of the organization the crop trust and his royal highness prince charles uh to meet with him at his house in london for lunch and to talk about uh food system diversity um, yeah, so yeah, that's what, what Sarah and I get to do. We get invited to, to have lunch with, with princes. <laughs> and so I flew overnight on my American Airlines points. You know, I get to, uh, I change my clothes in the bathroom at the airport. I jump into an Uber. You know, I, I hope what I'm wearing, I'm just worried that what I'm wearing is not acceptable for lunch. The Uber kind of drops me off in the wrong place and I'm wandering around the gates, you know, outside the house and I hear someone call, Danielle, Danielle. And it's Sarah saying, get into my taxi. I know where to go. So you saved me that day. And we had a lovely lunch and a lovely discussion with the prince and, you know, the president uh, or the former president of Mauritius and all the crop trust folks. And it was it was amazing. My second story just happened last month or was it earlier this month when we were both in Des Moines at their 20th anniversary at uh, Nyman Ranch's 20th anniversary um, celebration, their conference and their celebration. And I went out with you and a bunch of other cool women the the last night that we were all there. And um, I missed my flight in the morning, Sarah, because oh, no, I, uh, I, didn't know that. I uh, you know, had a little too much fun with you. So you, you've both saved me and caused me to miss a flight. So um, oh, shoot. <laughs> thank you. For, I, no, I'm it was fun. to be a bad influence on you. No, you're a great influence. Um, that was kind of a, a rambling uh, introduction. Do you want to add anything to your bio? You've done a lot of cool stuff over the years. No, I, lo I, I love that. Um, yes, I, I love that. <laughs> um, so the way I like to start these off, uh, the podcast, is to help our listeners get to know sort of your, your background, your personal background. And, and I like to ask everyone their favorite food memory. And you've eaten in restaurants all over the globe. You've cooked amazing meals, I'm sure. Do you have a favorite food memory from, from though, you know, that part of your life or from childhood or, um, you know, from working with slow food that you want to share? Wow. Um, there's so many, uh, 
food memories. And it's funny, like you would think I would expect a question like that. Um, but I actually don't know if anybody's ever uh, asked me that before. And uh, after pausing for a second, um, I thought of something more recently. Uh, it's not necessarily from childhood, um, but food was always a part of uh, my childhood. Um, I used to say that uh, I loved gathering around the table with my family and my extended family, uh, grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins, um, because when we, it seemed to be that when we were eating and when we were gathered around the table, no one was arguing and everybody was mm. getting along. Mm -hmm. So food was always very central to our family get togethers. And there's a joke in our family that we'll be in the middle of eating, you know, one meal, like let's say lunch. And like, while we're eating lunch, we're already planning and talking about what we're going to eat for dinner. And people who don't understand that, you know, or don't view food as central to their lives, um, you know, think that that's kind of crazy that you'd sure. be talking about one thing uh, and planning another. But um, the memory that immediately popped into my mind uh, is actually something um, that uh, anyone who follows me on Instagram knows well, because it's an image that reappears very regularly. And that's um, barbecued oysters at the Marshall <laughs> store um, overlooking <laughs> Tamales Bay in Point Reyes Station in West Marin County, which is, you know, sits in the Point Reyes National Seashore. And it is one of my most favorite places on earth. And it's a pilgrimage that I make um at least once a year since I was introduced to it, um, maybe around 2005. And so I just think that, you know, there's no such thing as too many barbecued Marshall store <laughs> oysters um, or too much Sancerre, uh, a good French wine. Amazing, amazing. I also like what you said about, you know, sort of, you know, eating one meal while planning for the, the other. And when I was a kid, my mom always said, you know, when I was, you know, eating breakfast, I wanted to know what was for lunch. And at lunch, I wanted to know what was for dinner. And so and I'm still like that. I'm constantly planning what I'm going to eat next. And it's, it's not a bad way to live. It's, it's a little obsessive, but it's, it's a, a fun way to, to look at the world, sort of. Um, Certainly, and it definitely weeds people out. I, I think I actually had a boyfriend break up with me once um, saying that he thought my family was crazy for that reason because he, because he viewed food as fuel and didn't right. understand um, that we viewed food as pleasure. I love it. I love it. And his loss, obviously. So um, I, I want to talk about um, the Good Food 100 restaurants list. Um, and I want you to describe, you know, why you started this list and, and why it's needed. Well, I, I started the Good Food 100 restaurants list for a couple of reasons. Um, I think, you know, one of them was the fact that I was noticing that all of the recognition um, up until this point in the industry and then the corresponding influence that comes from that recognition had really been based on subjective standards mm -hmm. and very opaque criteria mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily a meritocracy, um, not transparent, not quantitative, not objective. And it also primarily focused on uh, how food tastes. Mm -hmm. um, or if you think about uh, the old Zagat's restaurant ratings, you know, that only focused on food, which really meant taste, uh, service and ambiance. And 
And yet, as you know, and as, you know, everyone who's been working in the good food, food movement knows, you know, to be really good, um, food has to be good for everyone involved uh, in the food chain, um, from the environment to the animals to the farmers and to ultimately us, the eaters. And it was frustrating to me that um, I felt that the conversation around food was not telling the whole story of food, you know, by by focusing on just taste, it was really not focusing on the whole story of food. Um, so that was one part mm-hmm. of it. And I'd say that the second part of it was really, um, you know, knowing how hard chefs and restaurants that try to do the right thing uh, have to work in order to source and cook and serve good food. Right. Um, and because it's often more expensive or it might be harder to uh, find or harder to get to the restaurant that um, these chefs and restaurants were working so hard and not necessarily getting uh, the credit they deserved. Uh, the sh- chefs that were truly putting their money where their mouth was. And so I wanted to create um, a platform and that's really the way I look at the good food 100 restaurants list is it's a platform to celebrate the chefs and restaurants that are truly putting their money where their mouth mm-hmm. is and trying to buy good food. And they are trying to honor and support uh, every link in the food chain. Are you surprised that, that chefs and, and um, restaurateurs still have a hard time sourcing, quote unquote, good food? I mean, you think it would be much easier than it was for Alice Waters and, and you know, chefs like her in the 60s and 70s. But it, it's still difficult, right? It is difficult. And I think, um, you know, one of the challenges, um, and they're often not at the table for these types of conversations, um, if say we were at a conference on a panel, um, are the distributors. Um, so, you know, there's, we, we obviously always need to have the food producers at the table in these conversations. And quite honestly, in the chef community, sometimes we get criticized for not even having farmers Mm -hmm. uh, at the table Mm -hmm. at various food conferences. But I think distributors, um, you know, are often pointed to as the elephant in the room right. uh, or the problem, but they also are very much going to have to be part of the solution and their voices need to be at the table because they need to help uh, get this good food um, from the producers um, to the restaurants uh, and the eaters that are demanding to know where their food is coming from. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you help those distributors? Or what are ways that we can be more helpful to them? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the ways, and this is just a small example, but because it's a specific example, I'll share it here and maybe, you know, people listening can find a way to replicate this in their communities. But when we first started um, the Good Food 100 in 2017, uh, the chefs uh, need to tell us their total uh, amount of food that their uh, food dollars that they're spending and they need to do that at the producer level. And so they were a bunch of chefs in Colorado were putting in phone calls to uh, one of the local regional distributors asking for a summary of all their purchases. And, you know, this distributor was like, hmm, I've gotten a phone call from more than a handful of chefs. I wonder what's going on. And um, asked what this was about and realized um, that they were all applying to the Good Food 100 restaurants list. 
and was willing to tweak their um, system, the technology, in order to be able to give those chefs a line item summary of their data. Nice. Um, And so it's, you know, I think the same way that eaters are putting pressure by asking questions of restaurants, every time an eater asks, where did this come Mm -hmm. from? What's in this? They are basically telling a chef or a restaurant that they care. And then that helps the restaurant understand that they should care. Absolutely. And the, the same thing happens when the more chefs and restaurants ask questions of their distributors instead of just blindly accepting boxes of mm-hmm. food um, from who knows where, the more they will um, put pressure on the distributors and say that transparency has to exist throughout the food chain. Um, because one thing I like to remind people of is that restaurants can only be as transparent, transparent to their eaters, as transparent to their eaters as their distributors are willing to be Mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. So we got to get the distributors on board with transparency, um, and not seeing transparency as a threat to their business model. Well, and it sounds like the the distributor you mentioned was willing to change their their you know system to really help chefs you know share that transparency. Yes, um, and so you know the first year they they did it as really a service because they wanted to try to help these chefs. I mean, that distributor happens to be distributing um, organic uh, fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, not just locally, um, but uh, they specialize in organic fruits and vegetables. And, you know, they wanted to make sure that um, they were helping their restaurants that were buying, in their minds, good fruits and vegetables to get the recognition they deserved. Um, so, so hoping that that restaurant would then continue to keep buying from mm-hmm, them. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's great when the distributors realize that, Supporting the chefs and restaurants that are doing the right thing, um, in my mind, should only help them grow their business with those restaurants. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a, you know, they're creating a model that other, as you mentioned before, other, other distributors can follow. Can you talk more about some of the other, you know, quantitative uh, data that you're, you're analyzing to, to choose these restaurants? What are some other things that you, you are encouraging restaurants to share? Sure. Um, so just, you know, on the purchasing front, um, we are um, tracking their purchases in um, uh, six different food categories. Um, and then we can measure based on how much of their budget they allocate towards good food, um, which we define. We have a minimum threshold for good food, uh, which is uh, unique to each of those categories. Um, so what we learned this past year is that the 125 restaurants that applied and participated spent $80.1 million on good food. Wow. And that $80.1 million had a $255 million economic impact on the national good food economy. And so, you know, these are still small numbers. You know, the food industry globally is in the billions um, but I think what's really telling in these numbers is um, what it says is that for every dollar that a chef or a restaurant allocates towards good food, it's having an almost three times right. economic impact. And so, you know, when you take it down to just that dollar, and even if you and I were to think about it in terms of our, you know, weekly grocery shopping, 
you know, if you knew that you were having three times the impact through your purchasing, which food system Mm -hmm. do you want to contribute to Mm -hmm. the big industrial factory system that we're trying to change? Do you want to have a three time economic impact on that system? Or do you want to have a three time economic impact on the good food system, the one that we're trying to create? Absolutely. And those numbers are really striking. It's the first time that kind of data has been collected. So, I mean, first, congratulations on that. This is the second year now of of the list, right? And so what has changed, you know, from last year to this year? Have you seen any sort of major changes? Have you added more data points or is is there anything different? Yes. um, It's interesting. Uh, After last year's uh, list and economic report was published, uh, a couple organizations reached out to me, including the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Oh, great. And um, I was really excited about that because they said, you know, we love what you're doing. We love the idea that you're trying to promote good food. We love your definition of good food in terms of the fact that it has to support every link in the food chain. But we also, and this is where they were um, offering some criticism that we ultimately embraced and, uh, and then evolved, Um, They noted that in the first year, we only were capturing data on purchasing Mm -hmm. um, and purchasing a food and not other things that contribute to um, good food, like how you treat your workers. Right. um, And, uh, you know, what 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 are you paying your tipped uh, minimum wage? What are you paying your non-tipped minimum wage? Um, uh, given the, you know, recent, uh, me too issues that have, um, risen up in the restaurant industry, you know, asking restaurants if they have an official sexual harassment policy, um, also asking them about other things like what they're doing, what efforts are they making and if what, uh, and if, they're making an effort to reduce um, food waste in the kitchen, um, whether they're shifting towards uh, plant forward or plant based menus. Um, and are they looking at other sustainably minded things when it comes to, you know, composting and eco friendly uh, paper products and carry out containers? Mm-hmm. So um, we've added um, more questions. Um, I think it turned out to be about 10 questions that the Food Chain Workers Alliance had been surveying their member base on, and they asked us if we could insert that into our um, application, which we did. And so the full um, the full report, which is available for free, uh, download on our website. Can you include- give the URL quickly so people know? Sure. Uh, on our website, uh, the Good Food, what, sorry, not a the, but goodfood100restaurants.org. Great. So, um And you can see, um, you know, where uh, restaurants are. Um, And of course, you know, being that this is the second year and these are probably 125 restaurants that are maybe considered the low hanging fruit Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, we're already doing these things um, and therefore want to be recognized. But I think that um, we grew 40 percent from year one to year two. So I think that, you know, the momentum is growing, that transparency um, is the future um, of the restaurant business. And so it's not a matter of if, you know, restaurants are going to be transparent or if they're going to be forced to be transparent, but it's a matter of when. So we're encouraging chefs and restaurants to be proactive um, and get out ahead of this before they have some sort of a crisis 
that they have to react to in their community. Absolutely. And you mentioned Me Too, and I know the Food Chain Workers Alliance has been very proactive about working to prevent sexual harassment on the job. Were, were restaurants responsive to those questions? And, and do you know how many off the top of your head had policies in place to really protect? You know, we, we talk a lot about chefs, but there are so many other workers in restaurants, whether it's waiters and waitresses or, you know, kitchen staff. There's a, you know, and unfortunately these things go on behind closed doors. Were, were the restaurants receptive and open to sharing some of that information? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and the answer is they definitely were. Um, and I think, uh, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I think it was 90 plus percent nice. of these restaurants, um, you know, self-reported that they had an official sexual harassment policy. Excellent. That's really good news. I mean, given everything that's happened over the last year and a half or two years now. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I was happy, you know, that the Food Chain Workers Alliance reached out because, um, you know, I think that their questions, uh, which we added to the application as optional, um, but we, we gave a little caveat underneath it saying that, you know, we're asking you these questions to help build the database to help educate the industry. And I think that, you know, we promise confidentiality in exchange for people um, submitting an application on an individual level. And we make our, our educational mission very clear. And so I think it's great to see the industry stepping up in these ways that's making them safe, it, making it safe mm -hmm. for them to step up. Um, and then it allows us to um, collect the data and then hold up a mirror back to the industry. So at least people know like what the benchmark is. Because if you don't, you can't change things if you don't even know where you are. So right. I think what's Absolutely. important and what you said earlier is so critical. It's hard to believe that no one has collected this kind of data from restaurants before. No, and it, I mean, it's so interesting. I, I you know, I, I've, I went through last year's. I haven't had a chance to look at this year's, but I, it's just such in interesting information. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that stood out to me, you know, one of your links is plants and animals. And you talked about plant forward, uh, menus and, and chefs are embracing, you know, more plant centric meals. Was that surprising to you? Or, I mean, you, you've been watching these trends for a long time, but the fact that more restaurants are having, um, you know, these plant centric dishes on their menus, is that something that you're excited about? Oh, very much so. And I think, you know, the, the, it's very telling the data around that because, the, the type of restaurant, um, again, of our 125 applicants, the type of restaurant that is that reported that they are 100% of them are focused on plant forward or plant based menus are actually large food service organizations mm -hmm. like um, colleges and universities and the Boulder Valley School District. Um, so food, you know, this is a case where we often have this perception that fine dining leads trends and then it trickles down to fast casual. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, when it becomes mainstream, the big food service companies take notice. But I think when it comes to plant forward eating, what you're seeing is, is that the food service um, companies uh, at schools and universities um, are really leading it. So 100 percent of them reported uh, that they were focused on plant forward or plant based menus, whereas only 52% of fine dining restaurants 
uh, reported that they were focused on it. And then in the middle there at 64% fast casual. So again, food service and fast casual are working on plant forward or plant based menus, um, even more so than fine dining. That's so interesting. And I think, and you tell me, what I suspect is that it's coming from demand by young people, by students who, who want those options at, at cafeterias and, and other dining establishments. Yes, I, I think so too. I think that um, given, you know, again, this is only from our participant base, but I think that that makes sense that they're responding to what their consumers um, are demanding. Absolutely. And I mean, and, and those same young people, you know, they're going to, you know, get older and have more disposable income and will be, you know, it's a good trend for restaurants to be watching because they'll, they'll sort of know their future consumer. Yeah. And I think that they are there, you know, we learn our eating habits in these institutions. You know, if you think back to when we were in uh, grade school and high school and college, you learn um, how to eat and what's important around eating in these sort of institutional settings as well as your families. And so, yes, then when they're out in the, um, you know, the adult world making their own choices, um, they will already be coming to those um, situations with this more plant forward mentality. Absolutely. Any other big things that you were surprised about this year compared to last year? Um, I think uh, it's not necessarily a change versus last year, but, uh, you know, just on this topic of fine dining doesn't always lead. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that, you know, fast casual um, continues to be leading in terms of uh, overall purchases, good food purchases. Um, So uh, according to the 2018 um, report, again, this data is self-reported. But fast casual restaurants are reporting that they're spending 94% of their food dollars on good food. So uh, and that, that's, a, that's across all categories. And um, uh, fine dining is at 89%. So it's only a little bit different. But mm-hmm. again, I think it's that, you know, a lot of these fast, ca- fast casual brands that are participating, uh, like Tender Greens, which started in California and then is now growing along the East Coast, uh, or Farm Burger. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're new um, up-and-coming brands, and I think that they're, they launched um, already having a good food mentality uh, at the core of their DNA uh, as a brand. And so rather than uh, having to pivot uh, their, their strategy and pivot their offering to their consumers. These brands were born out of a good food, um, right. idea. So again, I think it shows that, you know, and you don't have to think that by, you know, going to a fast casual restaurant, that's going to, uh, be at a lower price point that somehow you have to make a trade off on good food. That's no longer the case. In many cases, um, you might be getting, better good food in a fast, casual environment. Absolutely. Do you think consumers, I mean, you're based in, in Denver. Do you think the eaters in the Denver community are, are watching this list and basing their, their you know, decisions uh, around where they eat on it? Well, um, I'd like to think so. Um, but I would say that we're only in year two. Um, and uh, I think that we're getting a lot of momentum uh, in our, our local media here in Colorado has been extremely supportive 
in promoting the list. Um, but I think that it's going to take, it's going to take time. Um, it's going to take both, um, more participation, uh, from, uh, restaurants. So we do have 44 restaurants here in Colorado that participated. Um, so Colorado is leading the way in terms of participation. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say that, you know, it's also going to take more consumer awareness. And when those two things merge together, uh, hopefully we'll create a tipping point perhaps in year three. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I liked what you had to say. It's not, you know, just fine dining that's moving these issues forward. But, it, and it, you know, we talk a lot about how chefs have been so forward thinking um, and creating uh, demand and and availability of, of good food. But it, it's workers and farmers and everyone else along the chain as well. Can you talk about why it's important, you know, you in your links that you're focused on those six sort of links? It, you know, purveyors and, 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 and producers are, are a big part of it. Why is that important? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it's funny that you asked that because just yesterday I sent an email uh, to the head of the Boulder County Farmers Market and my email started with, uh, well, if there are no farmers, there's no good food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, producers um, are absolutely uh, critical and they're the, they're the basis of our our good food system. Well, I would say that first of all, um, agricultural land, um, land that's in dedicated to agricultural production is the foundation of our food system combined with, you know, good, clean, uh, soil, water, and air. Um, but then, you know, the next link in the food chain, um, is the farmer, the rancher, the fisherman. And so without them, none of this is possible. And so I think, you know, given the shortage of farmers, given um, the rising age of farmers, given the loss of agricultural mm-hmm. land, um, it's important um, that ultimately what we're doing through this list is advocating for farmers and advocating for good food production. Um, and I think what we're doing is we're just recognizing that at this cultural moment in time, chefs and restaurants have a lot of uh, cachet. And, you know, with that cachet comes influence to uh, influence how eaters eat both in the restaurant, but more importantly, I think, in their everyday lives when they're doing their own grocery right. shopping. And so I think that um, we're using uh, uh, or leveraging the power and influence of chefs ultimately to advocate for farmers. Um and for good agricultural uh, production that, you know, at its very best is hopefully regenerative mm-hmm. and, um, you know, positive towards reversing the effects of climate change. Absolutely. And I like, you know, that that focus on, on farmers and producers. I think that's a great point to to end on. Can you give the URL to your website again so people can check out the list? Sure. Uh, you can check out the 2018 Good Food 100 Restaurants list at goodfood100restaurants.org. You can also uh, view a summary of the economic report or view the full academic report, which was conducted by the Leeds School of Business at CU Boulder. 
Amazing. Sarah, it's been great to talk to you. I can't wait to see you again, even if you do, you know, have a bad influence on me. But um, (laughs) thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com, email me at danielle at foodtank.com, and follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. <laughs>